Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you.
express all my gratitude. I could sing these songs as I often do, but every song must end, and you
morning, I pray that you just let go of all that went on this morning or even this week. Because all your soul wants to do is praise the Lord this morning. So just let go and let God. So come on, my soul. Oh, don't you get shy of me. Lift up your song. You got a lion inside of those nose. Get up and praise the Lord. Come on, my soul. Oh, don't you get shy on me. Lift up your song. You got a lion inside of those lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. Come on, my soul. Oh, don't you get shy on me. Lift up your song. Restore 
going to be in Luke 16, 19 through 31. Luke 16, 19 through 31. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there might be one in front of you, but there are Bibles on your way out. Please take one and, and take it home with you. We'd love to give you a Bible. But Luke 19, Luke 16, I'm sorry, 19 through 31. Last week we looked at God's call, his invitation for us to leave low to bar, right, and come to the king's table. Low to bar, no pasture, a barren place, and come to the king's table where there is a feast of food. We talked about grace, and we talked about how it restores and gives us an identity. Today, we're going to be comparing two people. And instead of seeing somebody come to the table, we're going to see somebody who rejects that. 
and somebody who struggles with their true identity. This, this passage is about hell. And uh, I know some of you in here are probably visitors and you're like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into today? Maybe you're the person who says, you know what, I don't even believe in hell. I don't believe in a God who would send somebody to hell. And uh, you might be surprised to hear, I kind of agree with that. I'll explain that in a minute. Some of you might not understand it, but I think by the end of this sermon, God will challenge you and you'll be glad you, you heard a message like this. Luke 16, verse 19, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he replied, but if somebody from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. Father, would you speak to us through your word? Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would you help us to examine ourselves? To see any place that does not align with you? And Father, I pray that if we don't know you, that we would come to know the king that invites them to the table, the grace that is offered to us. Lord, we love you and we give you praise. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In this parable, we are introduced to two people, right? Now, these two characters are contrasted. One is rich, one is poor. One is covered with purple clothing. That would be the best that you could be covered with in this time, right? It is the best of the best. This is, this is somebody who wears Versace. This is somebody who has the $25,000 Rolex on, on their watch, the gold chains and everything like that. The other is covered with sores. One feasts every day and one longs for the 
napkins from the other's table. Napkins? Yeah, napkins. Think flatbread. I'm talking about the, the bread that fell from the rich man's table. You see, in this time, there, you would have a, a piece of flatbread, and you would put it in your lap when you ate. You'd, you'd put it across your, your legs, and so you would take your hand, and you would grab the meat. You would grab the food. You would grab and eat. And then there were no napkins back then, so what you'd do is you would take your hand and, and wipe it on that piece of flatbread. And when you were done eating, if you were a rich person you would discard that. That would not be something that you would bother to eat. That's a napkin. And that's what Lazarus longed to eat that fell from the rich man's table. And he would, I'm sure, have to fight the dogs for those scraps, right? The rich man, when he died, he was buried. I'm sure it was a tremendous ceremony that must have taken place. Many people, I'm sure, that were paid to come and mourn, come and weep, instruments that were being played and everything like that. The poor man, it just says, died. And so we assume that his body was just taken and thrown into the dump to be burned. That's what they did with the poor. The contrast between these two people couldn't be greater, right? The most striking contrast, though, was something else. Did you catch it? There's something else different about these people. One of these people has a name, Lazarus, right? The other does not. And maybe you think, well, that's not that big of a deal. But if you look at all Jesus' parables, and that's what this is, all Jesus' parables, 36 to 40 of them that we know of, depending on how you count them, this is the only parable with a proper noun in it for a name. It's usually a, a sower, a shepherd, right? Two sons, a Samaritan. It's never a name. So this has to be significant. We, we all know that in Scripture, names are just that. And Lazarus means God is my help. Some say God is my salvation. The other man is simply the rich man. What, what are we being taught by that? Verse 25 But Abraham replied, this would be to the rich man's son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, what were those good things? It was his riches. It was what his wealth could provide, right? It's his status. Those are the things that this man built his life upon. The thing that mm, many of us long to build our life upon, right? And the reason that he doesn't have his name is because that's all he had at the end of the day. He's a rich man or nothing. That's what's most important to him, that status. That is the source of his identity. Even when the the fire has burned all of that away, it's still his identity that he clings to when it's gone. In contrast, if you build your life on God... If he is your identity, you can never lose that. What is identity based on? Three things. Three things. To know who you are. To know that your value. Or to know your value. And third, to know your purpose. To know who you are. To know your value. And to know 
why you're here. If God is the source of that in your life, if I'm a child of God, if I see the, the value, we moved it over there, back there, right? That tells me my value in God's eyes. And, and if I know my purpose, man, I am part of the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're called to, right? To see people be reconciled to God. That's where we find our value. And if that's your case, no circumstance can change that. Contrast that to if money is your identity, if you lose that, you can lose who you are. If another person's your identity, if you lose that, you come away with it. Who am I? Right? What's my purpose? Why am I here? We've got to be careful. Identity is huge. Why do you think the enemy attacks, attacks identity today? We see that, right? People don't know who they are. It's the enemy. Lazarus is the perfect example of this because he had nothing, right? But he had an identity. He has a name. Not even the biggest circumstance change, death, could take that away, right? Could change that. If you build your identity on anything but God, you'll eventually lose it. Your career, your wealth, your spouse, your children, your talent. If you live for your kids, if they're your identity, eventually they'll move out, right? You base everything on that love relationship. We all want that in our life, right? That love relationship, somebody to, to, to love, somebody to love us, somebody to care about us. If we base it all on that, that person can leave, though. Or that person one day will pass. And we won't have that anymore. And unfortunately, it can rock our world. Uh, we can become unhappy. And that's strictly because we don't know who our identity should be based on. And where that really comes from. When we lose those things, we don't think we have value. Right? We question that. You question your purpose when something that happens like that. Let me ask you a question. Who are you? Who are you? Mm. In, in high school, I would say I'm, I'm the geek. Right? Totally? Is that what somebody said? <laughs> Who am I now? Am I the pastor? Is that my identity? That could change. You could get rid of me right? Who are you? Am, am I a father? Yeah. Am I a, a spouse? Yeah. Who are you, though? Are you, are you willing to go as deep as this passage wants you to go in order to answer that question? That's what I'm wondering right now. Do you have a name, or are you a mother, a chauffeur, right? So Adobe probably feels like a chauffeur with her kids, but now Lydia has her driver's license, praise God. Are you a rich person? Are you a poor person? Are you a boyfriend? Are you a success, successful business person? A smart person? Are you just an artist? You might think, well, what's wrong with those things? What, what's wrong with being a dad? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is a great privilege, right? Unless it's the primary source of your identity. That's when it gets dangerous. Unless it's the thing that you say, boy, if I don't have that, then I'm nothing. Do you see how 
dangerous that can be. I hope that makes sense because some of us are looking for our identity and being loved by another person or by being seen as this type of person or that type of person. But who are you? Like Lazarus, you need a lasting identity. In the second part of this parable, we get to verse 23. In, in Hades, in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up. I'm, I'm guessing, again, that when I read that, you, you maybe have some reaction to that. And uh, uh, let me tell you, hell is real. It is a place of torment. But there are things that you may not understand, so would you just give me a, a little time to unpack this and talk about it a little bit, right? And, and this image of hell, you'll see some things going on. Notice what the rich man asked for. He says, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, who who would do this request for this rich man? That's the job of a servant, right? And, And wait a minute. The roles have been reversed here. The rich man used to be on top. Lazarus used to be on the bottom. But here there's been a reversal. Lazarus is now on top and the rich man is on the bottom. But the, the rich man is, is still trying to treat Lazarus like a servant. The rich man is still clinging to his status. He's still clinging to his authority, even though it's completely gone. Right? It's been burned away. The commentator said it's astonishing the level of denial going on here. He is totally out of touch with reality here. The man understands. He knows he's in torment. He knows everything's changed, but he doesn't grasp what's truly happened to him. Next thing, look at what he implies. Verse 27. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Do you see the implication here? I have a bunch of brothers living like I did. And they need a proper warning. He's implying that he didn't get a good enough warning. He, he's the victim here. Pair that with the third thing. The most amazing thing to see in this passage is what he doesn't ask for. He doesn't ask to be set free. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't ask to get out. The implication with what he asked for his brother is that he doesn't really think he's all that guilty. He just didn't get a fair shake, right? He's shifting the blame. But that's what hell is all about when you understand it. Hell is this. It is your freely chosen false identity going on forever. It is your freely chosen false identity identity going on forever. It's you living in that. It's you living in your false identity, clinging to it, even though it's gone. Right? It's gone. He's still clinging to it. It's been stripped away. Listen, hell is nothing more than what you want, than what you ask for. It's something that we choose. This is what C.S. Lewis says. In the long run, The answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? He already has. 
on Calvary, on the cross, right? To forgive them, but they won't ask for forgiveness. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. Hell is real. It is torment. But it's not a question of God sending somebody to hell. It's us choosing it. It's us rejecting the gift of grace and choosing it over God. Hell has a similarities to addiction. If you've ever been addicted to anything, uh, I, I know what that's like. You know it's hell. You know there's two patterns that are parts to addiction. The first one is disintegration. The second one is isolation. Disintegration. The thing that you look to, right, in your addiction, the thing that you look to in order to make everything okay, as time goes on, that thing disintegrates. That thing becomes less and less pleasurable or effective, so you need more and more, right? After a while, it disintegrates, and it doesn't help you, so you go in a different direction or to a new thing. You look for something stronger. The second thing is isolation. You begin to blame everyone and everything. You're in denial. You make excuses, and you become more and more cut off from people. You become mad at them. Look at what they did to me, right? Look at how they treated me. I'm out. I'm stepping back. It's their fault. Everyone's against you. No one understands you. No one knows how hard it is for you. No one understands what you're going through. It's self-pity. And it leads to isolation. That's what's happening here. Any, anything that you make the basis of your identity is the substance spiritually that you're addicted to. And in this life and in the next, you will experience disintegration and isolation. The rich man is still trying to hold on to it, onto his false identity that he brought them to hell. He, he can't let go of it even after it's disintegrated. And there's the isolation, right? We saw it. Hell is being alone where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The man looks up and he sees Abraham and Lazarus far away across that chasm. He's isolated. Hell is horrible. But it's chosen. We choose it. We have nobody to blame, not God. We have nobody to blame but ourselves. In Romans chapter 1, the Bible says that all God does to people is give them what they want. You want to build your life around something else? You want to be your own person where you choose your identity? You want to live life without God? Okay, right? The doctrine of hell gets us as close to the American understanding of freedom that you can get to when you think about it. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom that there is. And that's why C.S. Lewis says there's two types of people in this world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says to them, thy will be done. Right? You get what you choose. You choose your way. You choose the path. Right? The invitation to the table that we talked about last week to grace goes to everyone. And we all have the choice to accept it or reject it. All who end up in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it, w- it wouldn't be hell. 
This guy doesn't ask to leave. He doesn't ask to get out. The guy has what he chose, and that's why this is so sad, right? People believe this false picture of God in, in hell, and we see it all the time in, in movies and literature and different things like that, right? There's this pit, and it's on fire, and, and people are being thrown into it, and they're trying to, to climb over each other to get out, right? But God slams the lid on it, laughs, and says, ha-ha, it's too late. That's the image of, that we always see of, of hell. But here's the thing. No one in hell is saying, let me out. No one goes to hell except those who want it. They are the ones who want to be separated from God. Because there is a free invitation to grace that comes to us all. And only those people who reject it get that. You can keep your grace you can keep your Calvary. You can keep that gift, right? I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't want anything to do with that. And God says, okay. Second thing wrong with that picture is that God is not laughing. In Luke 19, when Jesus comes down to Jerusalem and he sees Jerusalem and all the people, it says he wept. He's weeping when he sees the choices that people are making. The Bible is the story of God living face-to-face with mankind in paradise and us rejecting that, rejecting God. And God doesn't just throw his hands up and say, fine, you get what you want, right? He strives to repair that divide. He makes a way so that that face-to-face relationship with him can be restored if we want it. If we don't, he'll respect that choice, right? He sends his son to die for us. He calls a church to be a part of reconciling people to him and the work that he's doing, right? That's what he's called us to do. There is no one laughing at anybody being put in hell. No one gloating about somebody being in there. But there's also nobody in there that doesn't want to be in there. It's a free choice. Now, what's the main application of this parable? If you, if you want to know, you need to know who Jesus is talking to. Listen to verse 14 through 16. The Pharisees who loved money, I thought about preaching about money too, but I was like, you'd probably kill me if I preached about hell and money. <laughs> they heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. That's something to examine. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Jesus says to these Pharisees, so you are self-justifiers as opposed to God-justifiers. There is an identity that is self-justified based on your accomplishments. But there is a God-justified self, right? A God-justified identity, not based on your accomplishments, but based entirely on the grace of God. What's your name? Where does your identity come from? In this parable, Jesus gives them a way to know where your identity comes from. Are you self-justified or God-justified? How do you know? Well, a way to tell that 
is to see how you treat the poor. A God-justified person has a complete reversal of values. The way they see people totally gets flipped upside down. Some people hate lazy people. They can't stand them. And, and that's n- not just because they're hard workers. They are. But it comes from because that's who their identity is. They're proud of being a hard worker. It's their substance that they look to to feel good about themselves. And when they don't see that in another person, they despise them. It's their justification. So you can't stand people who are lazy. A God-justified person can be a hard worker, should be a hard worker, right? But it's not their identity. So when they look at somebody who's not where they're at, right, they don't despise them. They want to see them change. They want to see them grow from that. The Pharisees made their self-righteousness, their religiosity, their identity. They got their self-worth from, from following the rules, so they looked down on everyone else who was in sin. Oh, the prostitute. Oh, the tax collector. Oh, this person who's doing that, right? They excluded them. They despised them. They hated them. They even prayed and thanked God that they weren't them, right? If we're not careful, that can be us in the church. I'm a moral person. I study and follow the Bible. I do what it says. And look at all these other people. Look what they do and how they are. They're horrible, right? If you start looking down on them, instead of looking to give them a hand up, that can take you someplace you don't want to go, right? If we start despising them, watch out. Watch out, because when that happens, man, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to get into heaven ahead of you. If your identity is in God's grace, you'll want to go to them. You'll want to help them, and you won't hate them or despise them or look down on them. Your heart will go out to them. Those people who, who are on the other political aisle, right? Those, who, those people who are men but claim to be women today, Does your heart go out to them or do you despise them? That will depend on the source of your identity. Is it religion or is it rooted in God's grace? You can 100% agree with somebody. You can know that they're 100% in the wrong. But the moment you start despising them, that's when you're messing up. Right, The moment that you start avoiding them, the moment that you start isolating from them, the moment that you want nothing to do with those people, that should warn you that your identity is in the wrong place. The only thing that God despises are despisers. The religious people who despise people. It's the only people Jesus told off. Right? The rich man didn't go to hell because he was rich. It's because his riches justified him and not grace. What's a a rich man who's justified by God's grace look like? They'll look like somebody who serves instead of somebody who is served. They'll use their money to help, 
to be of service to people. That group that you don't like, are you willing to be a servant to them? That's a good question to ask yourself. Wasn't that Jesus' example? Anybody who was an enemy of his, didn't he serve? Is there anyone that you just can't stand? Look out. Where is that rooted in? It's not rooted in grace, I can tell you that. Okay, if you're not quite there yet, how do you get there? Well, we'll see it at the very end of this passage. This is really interesting. It says you have to listen. You have to listen. The man thinks he knows what it will take for somebody to avoid this, right? Send Lazarus. That's what he says. But Abraham is like, no, they have Moses and the prophets. But the rich man thinks it's going to take something like somebody rising from the dead. Then they'll repent. The rich man thinks it's going to take some big emotional experience. They're going to need something spectacular to to happen to them, to wake them up, right? They, They got to be scared out of their shorts, preach hell, scare them, right? Drag them to the altar. Here's the thing about that, though. That fear is just temporary. We go to God, but then when things get normal, we're good. Remember 9-11, how many people went to church and how long that lasted? When we aren't scared anymore, we don't need God anymore. No, what, what people need is, a, is an absolute change in their identity. They need to listen to Moses and the prophets. Very interesting. Why do you need to listen to them? Well, it's through them, it's through God's word that you find that Jesus died for you and why he died for you. That has to be where your identity comes from. That's where you find out who you are, how much you're worth, and what your purpose is. You'll find exactly what you're searching for. Because you're searching for something. Everybody is. You're searching for that. You're trying to fill it with things or people that it never satisfies. When you find him, that's what will satisfy you. Why, why do we so desperately want whatever that thing is in our, life, in our lives that we turn to instead of God? Why do we want that so desperately in our lives? Another, perps, another person to love that will love us, some kind of status, because you're always looking for love and acceptance. Money and sex and things, they're great for a moment, but they don't last. They don't satisfy like knowing God, right? Oh, if I have somebody that will love me, that's all I need. That works until it doesn't. That's why people look to religion, right? They're looking for that thing to fill them, and they look to religion Oh, if I'm good enough, right? If I'm good enough, then what will happen? Oh, God will love me. But that's not how it works. That's every other religion. That's not Christianity, though. Our God loves us. And he sent his son to die for us. Right? That'll change your life. You have to get to Scripture and see what he did and why he did it. That will flip your life upside down. Let's go to the prophets. Isaiah 53. 
This is foretelling Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus would even come. Listen to what it says. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own ways and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Listen to this. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer if he would render himself as a guilt offering. My friends, the only way that you know truly know His love for you. The only way that you can truly experience His transforming love for us is if we accept Him as our Lord and Savior. Is if we accept that free gift of grace. That is the only thing that will pull your heart from those other things that you chase after, that we all chase after. Money, status, privilege, whatever it is. Love. It's the only thing that can pull us away from that. And today, I hope you realize that. I hope you accept that gift. Right? To see His love, to see His value, you have to see the cost. Right? You have to know His suffering is tied to your value. You see also the results of his suffering. Another version says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The Bible tells us that in all that suffering, it was worth it. Worth it. That's where our value comes from. That's where my value comes from. That's where my identity comes from. When Jesus was on the cross... He didn't say, my God, my God, I can't breathe. Though I'm sure he was suffocating. He didn't say, my God, my God, I'm in so much pain. Even though the Bible says his appearance was marred more than any other man because of how he was beaten. But he didn't speak that on the cross. No, he said, my God, my God, why have you cast me away? Why have you forsaken me? 
My friends, this is how much he suffered for you. You see, you have to understand hell to understand what it cost him. Because he was isolated. He was separated from God. He paid the price for all sin. He bore our iniquity. You might not like the doctrine of hell. But it shows us how much he loved us. You got to get that. He was cast away from God, and the word said the results were worth it. The results so that we could be saved, so that we have something else to choose besides hell. My friends, make no mistake, he does not send us there. He is not casting people to hell. No, he paid the steepest price so that we could avoid it. The price so that we could avoid it. But he honors the choice we make. Even though I deserve hell, because of what he did, I don't have to go there. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. That's where my identity is rooted in. My friends, come to the king's table today. Worship him as Lord. Give him thanks. See your worth. See the price he paid for you. And know that he said it was worth it. Lay everything down. Lay whatever else is in your life that you're going after, trying to fill the hole, and find it in the grace of God. guarantee you it'll flip your life upside down if you surrender everything to it. In a minute, we're going to have communion. And if you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to partake in it. You don't have to be a member of this church, right? If you only look to him for your salvation, if you realize, man, I'm a sinner, and the wages of the sin is death, but praise God, he died for me. He died to pay the price for that sin. And if I accept him and accept that and believe in my heart that he did do that, you can be saved and you can partake in this. I want to give you an opportunity. Would you bow your heads? Is he calling you to the table? Who are you? Are you rooted in God's grace? Is he reaching out to you? Is he pricking your heart today? If he is, and if you would like to say, Lord, I am a sinner. I have been chasing after all these things that don't mean anything. But I surrender it all to you. I ask you to forgive me. Forgive everything that I've done. I ask you to make me your son, your daughter, and set me free. I accept you as my Lord and Savior.